I had a friend who was a falconer, master falconer, and I went and saw his hawk, and as soon as I saw it, that's a dinosaur. Imagine if dinosaurs were brought back to life, and you could become a dinosaur keeper. But to really be prepared, imagine you first had to do a bunch of reading, pass a government exam, collect all the required special equipment, find a mentor, and then catch one in the wild just to get started. What if it would take seven years before you could be considered a master dinosaur keeper? Would you still do it? I'm Erin LeCount, and this is the Land Before podcast, Fossil Histories and Paleo Mysteries, a podcast produced by Dinosaur Ridge in Morrison, Colorado. Today, we're going to explore a couple of topics that require some imagination. First, what it might be like to capture and care for a wild dinosaur by looking at the closest thing to that today, becoming a master falconer. Later, we head to Boulder, Colorado to the CU Museum of Natural History for a deep dive into dinosaur doo-doo, you know, coprolites, to learn what they can teach us about dinosaur behavior and the scientific process itself. But first, Dinosaur Ridge board member Dr. Cynthia Norgren is an associate professor of chemical and biological engineering at Colorado School of Mines and a dinosaur enthusiast. By the way, she's also a neurosurgeon, but her hobby is something that might make her a great candidate for dinosaur ownership in the unlikely event that they do make a comeback in our lifetimes. She currently owns two hawks. Paleo is a Harris hawk, and Trace is a Cooper's hawk. They are majestic to see up close, nothing like songbirds. These are raptors. Cynthia, tell me how you become a master falconer, because that sounds like something out of the medieval era that you most people wouldn't maybe realize that that is still something that you can do today. If you're interested in becoming a falconer, you need to contact like the Colorado Falconry Club or Colorado Hawking Society. There's California Hawking Society. And you get their study guides and their books. And then you you have to read a number of different texts because they don't have a single textbook that you need to study. So you need to get all this information gathered. And then you go down to uh, the Department of Wildlife and you take the exam. If you pass the exam, then you can be an apprentice falconer. The apprentice falconer needs to be supervised by a master falconer. So you have to have a master falconer who's who's ready to take you on as an apprentice. And as an apprentice, you cannot beg, borrow, buy, or steal a bird. You have to capture a bird. Before you can get a hawk, you have to have a mew. A mew is a place where you keep the bird. You can't keep it in a bird cage, you can keep it in a mew. And uh, there are certain restrictions, federal and state laws, about what your mew can look like. So it has to have a window, it has to have a perch, it has to have a number of different things. And then you need equipment as well. You need anklets and jesses which connect the anklets to a carabiner so that you can hook it onto your glove and so uh, and you need a glove and you need a scale because you have to weigh them and then a uh, inspector well actually a um, park ranger wildlife manager comes out checks your mew checks all your equipment make sure everything is functioning and working and then we'll sign off on your mew now you can go get a bird okay so then you go to the falcon pet shop and you pick one out right so you have to have a trap to keep catch the bird. And as an apprentice, you can either have a red-tailed hawk, which is about a three-pound, it's a big bird, or a kestrel, which is about the size of a robin. Then you go out with your trap and your bait, and um, it's always a lot of fun because 
the master falconer is driving the car. You're in the passenger seat with your trap with a little, uh, with your bait in it. It's either a, a hamster or gerbil or you know, whatever, depending on what kind of bird. And you drive real slow and you have to throw the trap out from a moving car and keep going. Because if you get out of the car and put the trap down, the hawks will fly away. So you have to search the telephone poles and the wires looking for the birds you want. And then you throw out your trap, and you drive about a block away and turn around, and get your binoculars, and you look, and you watch. And as soon as uh, you catch a bird, then you go and um, you uh, immediately put a towel around the bird. And as soon as the bird's head is covered, they totally relax. Now you have a few minutes where you put the anklets on the bird. And you inspect the bird, make sure the bird is is not injured or sick. And then you put the anklets on the bird and the jesses on the bird. And now you have, you know, and you put them in your um, cage to transport him back to the mew. It sounds first fascinating to me that as an apprentice, you have to go catch a wild bird. <laughs> I would think that purchasing a bird that may have already been somewhat docile would be the the first step that you might take, be it a trade or or, or a purchase. But is there a reason why you have to catch a a wild bird? That's part of the process of being a falconer, is being able to get these birds out of the wild and to take a bird from the wild and care for it and train it and keep it alive. Uh, If you You can't just go down and and buy a parakeet and expect that you now know parakeet physiology and uh, their habits and and their background. If you go out to trap the bird, you know where they live. You can tell a bird that's only six months old versus a bird that's, you know, part of a haggard pair. And you don't want to pick out a like the haggard pair. You don't want to take one of those. And so there are certain times that you can trap a bird. And the, the times start around um, about June 30th until February. And then you can't trap during the time when they're mating and taking care of their nests. So they expect you to be able to do those things. And they expect you to start off doing those things rather than learning it later on. How long does this whole process take? It sounds like a serious time commitment. You're an apprentice for two years, so you can have one bird a year. So you need to keep a bird alive for a year to get signed off by your master falconer saying, yeah, you you can take care of a bird. So you get your bird. um, The the first bird I got was a kestrel, and I had her for 10 years. And then you go to the Department of Wildlife, and they'll give you a general falconry license. And then uh, after you're a general falconer for five years, then you can apply for a master falconer, falconry license. And when you get that, then you can have up to five birds. And you can, if you want to start breeding, you have to go through special breeding uh, uh, training and processing and get breeders licenses and things like that. So, but you can now have more birds and you can, uh, Again, you can go out and catch one. 
you know, it doesn't have to cost you any money, or you can go buy like a Jeer Falcon for five thousand dollars. You know, so it depends on your budget and what you want as far as what you can do. And then once your master um, apprentices can contact you to see if you'll mentor them through the process. So it's a long process. And the Department of Wildlife can come out to your mew anytime they want to inspect it. And if, when you capture a bird, they have to come out and ban the bird. And so now you have a bird with a band on it. If you lose a bird, you know, you send it off and it flies away, uh, you have to report the lost bird. If the bird dies, uh, you have to give the bird to the Department of Wildlife and it, so that they can look at it for diseases or other processes going on and um, they will come out and take the bird and if it is a veterinary death, a euthanasia by a veterinarian, the vet will just sign as veterinary euthanasia um, and you still have to contact the Department of Wildlife. Can you explain what the trap looks like? What kind of trap? Because I'm thinking really weird things because I watch lots, lots of science fiction, but what kind of trap um, or would you use uh, when you're catching a, a, live, a wildlife bird? The trap is typically uh, metal. It has a just like a metal screen squ square base and then you have a dome in the center of it that you would put the hamster or the mouse in. And typically the dome is double-layered, so when the hawk attacks the dome, the claws can't get through to the inner part of the dome. So whatever bait you use will not die. You'll, you may scare it quite a bit, but it will not die. So it's not like you're killing something. Yep, they're going to the have hawk. a rough day, but they will walk away from that rough day. Right, they have to get thrown out of a car. They're sitting in a trap. Birds are looking at them. A bird, you know. But the bird comes down, and the, the screen all the way around it and the screen on the dome has fishing line that's tied in little loops. So they attack it and their claw gets into a loop. And then as they pull away, that loop tightens. And you catch them by one or two toes. And the trap has to be heavier than what the bird can fly away with, is another thing. And so they're trapped by their feet, just but with fishing line. So now you've got the bird. You have to take care of it, and that's probably no easy feat. During my apprentice period, my kestrel flew under chain link fence broke its wing and its leg on the same side. And the other, uh, other part of this equation is there are very few veterinarians who have licenses to take care of wild animals, wild birds. So you have to know the vet that you can go to. And uh, so I took, him to, I took the bird to the vet. They had to tape, tape the wing to the to the body of the bird, and then they put kind of a, a cast on the leg, and the bird stood up and just fell over because all the weight was on one side. Um, and when I had, when I was taking care of her in the mew, I had to give her antibiotics, so I would inject the antibiotics into the mouse, cut the mouse up into pieces, and feed her the mouse. And um, at one point, she tried to fly 
you know, did fly around and she ran into a wall and broke her beak off. So now she doesn't have a beak. So now you have to cut it in, cut the mouse up. I'm a master mouse cutter upper. I had to cut the mouse up into little pieces and feed it to her. And I would dip them, dip the part in water because now she can't protect herself from dehydration because her mouth is open all the time. And like a toenail or a fingernail, it'll grow back, but it takes weeks. And so I, I had to feed her uh, little bits. And this is where I learned that a bird can't not look at something moving. Because I would have her on the fist, and she would, you know, look everywhere except, you know, where, when I was feeding her, she'd look everywhere thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I don't. And all you had to do is just move, move the hand just a little bit, and she couldn't not look at it. At this point, are you thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I think that experience really solidified bird physiology, bird anatomy, bird behavior, and makes me a better falconer because of that experience. So for you, all this effort is ultimately worth it. It's just extraordinary. Plus, they're, they're dinosaurs, you know, or they're the same lineage. And when you look at, uh, like, Jurassic Park movies, all the raptors, the velociraptors and all those others act very much like birds. And dinosaur physiology is very much bird-like. And so there's a lot of connections between birds and dinosaurs. And so, yeah, it's the closest thing we can get to dinosaurs today. Totally enlightening. I had no idea how much is involved in the proper care of raptors. It's always a thrill when you see or hear one out in the wild. Always makes me wonder about the sounds of dinosaurs. We know how the movies portray dinosaur noises, and scientists may one day be able to recreate actual dinosaur vocalizations. Until then, we have people like our volunteer Jim Watson to help us imagine what a velociraptor, for instance, might have sounded like. My name is Jim Watson, and I volunteer as a docent at the Exhibit Hall at Dinosaur Ridge. One of the more popular prehistoric creatures in the late Cretaceous period is a velociraptor. I have often wondered what sounds they might have made. Something like this, maybe? Being the size of large turkeys, I don't think they sounded real loud all the time, and they may have communicated to each other while hunting in packs. We can't be sure, but if one was alive and near me, you would hear the sounds of a docent running away very fast. Anyway, this is how I think velociraptors might have sounded like. Okay, ready to dig into some dinosaur dung? CU Boulder professor Dr. Karen Chin is world-renowned for her research on the fossilized feces of dinosaurs. We sent our advisory board member Dr. Nicole Peavy, paleontologist with the Colorado Department of Transportation, over to Dr. Chin's lab to record a conversation with her about the value of coprolites and how today's bird behaviors might inform the way dinosaurs ate, including possible dietary changes right before laying eggs. Do coprolites really contain fossil histories and paleomysteries? You're about to find out. I'm actually going to start off with a bit of a silly question, a myth that students bring up sometimes. Was the name coprolite meant to be an insult to the early American paleontologist Edward Cope as some Bone Wars mudslinging in the late 1800s? Or am I just mispronouncing it? Coprolites were named after the Greek word copro, which means feces or dung, and light, another Greek root meaning rock. And that, they were named back in 1829 by uh, William Buckland. So actually, 
they weren't named after Edward Drinker Cope, and the Bone Wars were quite a quite a few years later in the 1870s. It's it's always kind of cool to hear these timelines. You don't think about when these fossils were named, you know, right. kind of in relation to each other, and what that kind of means. Uh, you hear about dogs, coprophagy. Sure. You dogs that eat poo, sure. that eat uh-huh. out of the litter box. Or dung beetles do coprophagy, too. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> but coprolites are literally full of clues that can tell us all kinds of things about animal behavior, plant life, and food chains. Though it, it does depend on how well a specimen is preserved. If a coprolite is preserved very well, we can find out which organisms lived with other organisms. Sometimes we can figure out who ate whom. Sometimes we can figure out how dung was recycled back into the environment, but it does depend on how well a specimen has been preserved. Are there any telltale signs that you have an actual coprolite and not just a lump of unrelated rock? I usually look for several different criteria. The most obvious one is shape, and that works if you're talking about feces from a medium-sized animal, say a dog, because that will hold the shape pretty well. If you're talking about Feces from a very large dinosaur, that often doesn't hold shape when it's deposited or buried or kicked around. So shape is one criterion, but another one is chemistry. And that is because if you were a carnivore that ate a lot of meat and possibly bones, the the coprolites that are preserved, or the feces that became coprolites, would have a lot more phosphorus in them. So a phosphatic composition also can be indicative of being a coprolite if phosphorus isn't common in the surrounding sediments. And another criterion is whether you can see bits and pieces of chopped up biotic fragments, like bone or something like that. That would suggest that you're looking at something with dietary residues. And finally, if you find that there are a bunch of burrows or other marks that indicate interest from another organism, That could suggest that this mass that you're looking at was of interest to a lot of other organisms like dung beetles or or snails that might have eaten it. So that is another clue. So we look for multiple lines of evidence before we say, yeah, we think this is a coprolite. I would imagine that, you know, of course, any one animal is going to produce many tons of dung throughout its life, but we don't see that kind of ratio, do we, Of, of feces compared to body fossils like bone? There are a few examples where I've seen hundreds of coprolites in a small area, and coprolites can be more more abundant than body fossils, but that is usually the exception. And you are right. Each uh, fecal deposit, let's call it that, each poop, (laughs) has a history. And so the first thing that happens is that that food has gone through an animal's digestive tract. And so... If an animal digests its food very well, what you what comes out may not look like a lot. So that's number one, digestion. Then decomposition. If you've got a bacteria that are actually working to break it down before it's fossilized, you could completely decompose it. And then there's something we call diagenesis, which is geologic processes, basically thinking about changes in mineralization. So we have digestion decomposition, and diagenesis, or the three Ds. (laughs) And all of those can work to obscure what that original diet was. So again, each coprolite not only has a history, but 
Some are really, really informative, and some you just can't tell much from. So I really like to study the ones that have lots of recognizable things inside. A particular fossil observation that starts in 1996, but has been updated at least twice since then, largely thanks to learning from modern ecosystems. I wonder if you could walk us through that case? This involved coprolites from Montana that were about, that are about 75 million years old. About 20 fecal deposits that were all filled with mineralized wood. Most animals just do not eat wood unless you're eating bark because you can't get sustenance from them. But if they were filled with wood, the animals were probably feeding on conifers, since it was conifer wood that had very short leaves or needles. And then if the leaves are very tiny, they'd have to ingest a lot of wood. Later, after I got my job here at the University of Colorado, I began rethinking the story that they were feeding on conifer leaves. And I began to think, you know, of all of the hundreds of pieces I looked at, I never saw pieces of wood that look like small stems. So I re-examined some of the thin sections I'd looked at, and I saw that the cells, the wood cells, had very distinctive characteristics that indicated that the wood was actually decomposed or rotted by fungi before it was ingested by the dinosaurs. And there are various reasons I could tell that, because wood requires a very specific environment. In order to decompose the lignin in the wood, you have to have oxygen present. There's no oxygen present in a dinosaur's gut. So they had to have ingested rotted wood to start off with. So this was really exciting because most of the time we think of herbivorous dinosaurs just feeding on green plants. But they could have gotten sustenance from the rotted wood because digestibility of rotted wood increases. They could have got sustenance from the fungal tissues, and they also could have got sustenance from, if they were feeding on a rotted log, they could have been ingesting a lot of invertebrates, like insects and crustaceans, as they were feeding. So that was really fun, and my hypothesis at the time was that these dinosaurs were likely feeding on rotted wood in order to increase their protein intake when they were reproducing because these particular coprolites were found in the same strata, stratigraphic layers, that nesting horizons were found in. That was fun paper too. <laughs> and this is, of course, the famous Egg Mountain site in Montana, correct? Yes. Yes, the famous Egg Mountain site in Montana. Two medicine formation. Then a few years later, somebody said, hey, we found some what we think are coprolites in the Kaparowitz formation of southern Utah. So I looked at the specimen and I visited the site and found almost identical coprolites to the ones that were a thousand kilometers north in Montana. They were filled with rotted conifer wood. They had dung beetle burrows in them, but they also had bits and pieces of crustaceans in them. Can't tell what kind of crustacean they were. We just don't have enough. But by looking at the very, um, looking at thin sections and looking at the microscopic detail of those 
pieces of shell we found, we could tell that it was crustacean, possibly something like a like crabs or crayfish or something. That is really cool. I'm going to say that over and over again because this all is terribly cool. And these were all pieces in the coprolite, so it wasn't that some dinosaur had stepped on a crustacean on a, a fecal deposit, that the crustaceans actually went through the digestive tract of these animals. That was very cool because that kind of supported my previous hypothesis that ingestion of invertebrates would increase the protein content when the dinosaurs were laying eggs. And if we look at the behavior of living dinosaurs, the birds, when they are getting ready to reproduce, they have to increase their protein intake so they can yolk all the eggs, provide enough protein for them. They also have to increase their intake of calcium so they can shell all those eggs. So they have some very stringent dietary requirements. So if you can imagine a big duckbill dinosaur 75 million years ago, and it's getting ready to lay eggs, and it has to get more protein. You can't really, they're not really built to attack other dinosaurs like a, like a T-Rex. They're not built to hunt small mammals or hunt individual insects. But if they fed on a rotting log, that is a predictable place where you would find lots of invertebrates like ants and beetles and pill bugs and even crabs in wet environments. That's so cool. <laughs> and the fact that we found the pieces of crustacean shell in over 10 deposits, meaning that this wasn't one dinosaur that had a taste for shellfish, but it was, was found over and over at different stratigraphic layers, which means different points in time. Yeah, no matter how often I see a case like this, it is always so cool to see how interpretations change with new evidence. There is kind of a misconception of science as a series of settled facts, but really, science is so dynamic. What would you like listeners to take away from this story about changing hypotheses about these coprolites? Well, I think it illustrates that we are always learning. I, I love this about scientists because you're always you're always learning, you're always considering new angles, and you have to be humble enough to say, hmm, my original interpretation was wrong. Let's revise that with this new evidence and come up with a, a better hypothesis. Dr. Karen Chin, thank you so much for having us in your lab today and helping everyone better appreciate the value of food webs, ecology, and of course, coprolites in the fossil record. Thank you so much for your interest in our work. Pop quiz time, or in this case, poop quiz. I've got three questions for you. First, what does the word coprolite mean? Second, if phosphorus is present in a coprolite specimen, what does that indicate? And third, can you name two of the three Ds Dr. Chin mentioned when trying to discern the history of a coprolite specimen? Okay, here are the answers. The word coprolite can be broken down into its Greek parts, copro, meaning feces or dung, and lite, meaning rock. This wasn't Othniel Charles Marsh calling his rival Edward Drinker Cope a coprolite. The term was given by British paleontologist William Buckland in 1829, long before the bone wars flared up in America. Number two, if phosphorus is found in a coprolite, that's an indication that you're looking at the fossilized feces of a meat-eating animal, assuming phosphorus wasn't common in the surrounding sediment. Protein-rich foods like meat and bones contain phosphorus. 
And finally, can you name two of the three Ds ecologists look for when studying coprolites? If you said digestion, decomposition, and or diagenesis, you get an A+. These are the processes that can affect our ability to discern what food a coprolite may have contained, digestion, decomposition, and diagenesis. You can find additional information in our show notes on the podcast page of the dinoridge.org website, so check that out. We'll have another episode of the Land Before podcast, Fossil Histories and Paleo Mysteries, next week. I'm your host, Erin LeCount. Thank you for listening. Jeff LaMontagne is our supervising producer. Kristen Kidd is executive producer. Erin LeCount is our host. Michelle Howell and Alice Olson are regular contributors. Our theme song is by Hansdale Sue. And I'm Katie Bradley, sound editor and sound engineer for the Land Before podcast, Fossil Histories and Paleo Mysteries, produced at Dinosaur Ridge in Morrison, Colorado. Come and visit us.